Welcome to the Next of the Hub, the TV series hub podcast. Join us to explore the entertainment galaxy in this new feature made with love from fans and for fans. If you like debates, neck talks, and to be well informed about TV and film, this is the podcast for you. From Nerks to Nerks. Welcome to Nerks of the Hub. I am your host, Kelsey. I'm joined by fellow Nerk Uber. Hello. And our guest, the current showrunner of Killjoys, Adam Barkin. Hello. So you guys will know Adam as writer, producer, Killjoys, X Company, Flashpoint, Bruno and Boots. Basically, you've had your fingers in every little pie, it seems like. We are so excited. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for asking. I uh, enjoy listening to your podcast, so this was nice. Oh, that's really nice to hear. So we kind of wanted to start off with, I think that showrunner, the title, is a hard one sometimes for fans to fully grasp what that means as a role, especially when you're taking over for the creator, um, Michelle Lavretta. So we were hoping maybe you could give us like a basic, is it, you know, you're the big picture guy, you're there in the, you know, every day doing it, sort of what that is. You know, basically, if someone, let's say not me, was particularly upset about a death, maybe Potter or Pippin, do we blame you or do we blame the writer? Right. Uh, yeah, good question. And yes, believe me, I know some people have been upset. I seem to be the one who got to kill a lot of those characters. Uh, although not Pippin, you can blame that one on Julianne Doucette. Um, I uh-huh. begged him not to, but he insisted again and again, no. Pippin must die. Um, it's actually not true. He was very upset when we decided that was the story we were going uh, we to tell. So I guess the best way to describe a showrunner in television is kind of like what a, um, a director is like uh, in movies, which is to say the showrunner is the person who kind of has to maintain the vision for the entire series, you know, for a season anyway. So uh, it's a pretty broad term. I'd say unlike director, there, it isn't as defined necessarily. Um, you know, and you can have different, it's kind of also like the term producer. It can mean a bunch of different things. But currently, I'd say that the most typical way you could describe a showrunner for a TV show is the person whose job it is to guide uh, the story room. Uh, the person who makes the big decisions in terms of where the story is going to go with the help, obviously, of all the writers. Uh, the person who's also involved in the hiring, to a large degree, of the uh, key members of the production staff. Uh, the person who is the connection or the interface between the show and the uh, you know, production company uh, and the network. Uh, basically, the person, you know, the, the buck stops at the showrunner. If there's a problem... The showrunner is the person who's expected to fix it, uh, and the showrunner is also the person with the power to be able to make those decisions. The showrunner, you know, almost always runs the writing room, meaning they're the ones who kind of go in there most and and make the decisions as to which way it's going to go. Um, and then the showrunner, depending on how they, because it's, you know, when you get into the thick of things with the show, it it becomes a job where you're kind of getting pulled into multiple directions, you know, uh, and TV is really split into three components. You've got, you know, the writing, the production, and then the post-production. 
Um, and so the writing is pretty clear. You're breaking the story, you're writing the scripts, which you're then feeding into production, which is the shooting of the, of the film. And then post-production is the editing, the effects, the music. And at a certain point, there's just no humanly way possible to be able to do all three. If, as we were on Killjoys, you know, there's a point when you're doing all three at the same time. You're trying to keep scripts coming, you're shooting them, and you're also posting them. Uh, so in that case, what happens is the showrunner's job is to kind of try to spin all those plates or keep all those plates spinning. But, you know, what you end up really doing is relying on the people who you work with, either at an equal level or just below you, to kind of keep all those things going. Um, you know, in my case, had a great writing room, excellent directors, um, and I always made sure, we had from the beginning always made sure that the writers of each script produced their own episodes um, so that they would be on set uh, whenever the episodes were being shot to be able to guide the director. But then in post, especially, uh, we had uh, an executive producer, Karen Trebetskoy, who's been with us since the very beginning, uh, and it was really kind of my right hand in that respect, and she really uh, ran and is currently still running post, working on the editing, making sure the show looks as, as amazing as it is. And uh, in that respect, you know, I'm able to weigh in on all of that stuff. But but Karen is the person I rely on um, absolutely to make the show look as amazing as it does. Well, let me ask you, uh, kind of as a follow up on that, I, I had been wondering, how how do you get this kind of a gig, especially with with uh, Killjoys? Did did you have to like present your vision to Michelle to see if it was in line with what she would be okay with, or how does that kind of all come about? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I had met Michelle actually back when uh, she was uh, starting uh, up another show, Lost Girl. Uh, oh, yeah. I met, we had a great time, but she ended up going with other writers. I've never entirely forgiven her for that, but that's fine. Um, because then when we met again on Killjoys, which I'd been hearing about for a while and which I was even more excited about because I was just a born and bred sci-fi nerd. Um, yeah, it really is a case when you're hiring another writer. Um, and in, you know, in the first season I was coming in as a, I believe my credit was a consulting producer, um, uh, was the idea that, yeah, you're putting together a group of people who you hope both have uh, similar tastes and, and have, uh, you know, you both want to kind of do the same thing, but certainly when you're beginning, it's pretty hard to tell. So there's also a certain amount of faith. And in that case, you just really, as what we did, went out for lunch and just talked for an hour because there's also, you're going to be in a room together for, you know, eight, sometimes 10 hours a day. Um, you're going to talk about everything. Very writers very quickly, you know, start to sh overshare everything about their lives. So you better like the person and you better want to be able to hang out with that person. That kind of becomes a really key thing. So, you know, while I certainly talked about my favorite sci-fi shows and, and what I liked and seeing what she liked, it was also, I think, just about could I do I want to hang out with this guy uh, for a while? Mm -hmm. Luckily, we just both have a very similar goofy sense of humor. We have actually very different tastes, but I think they work to kind of balance uh, each other out. And we both really respected each other's writing a lot. So, so that obviously is also really important. That's great. So who do we have to talk to to get pre-singing in every episode? <laughs> I think we found out I, on Twitter last night, you wrote both episodes that he did sing. So I'm just saying, I mean, I feel like that would be, you know, a, a great addition for season five. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> I could not agree with you more, believe me. There's no bigger fan of Tom Allison than me other than maybe my daughter. Uh, who got a chance actually to be in an episode with Tom, and which he may or may not be singing uh, in season five. 
Um, so believe me, any chance I get to put Tom in a situation where he can sing, I jump at it because I agree. I, I just he's he's absolutely. I mean, a a wonderful guy, a fantastic actor. You know, somebody who took that part and made it so much more than I think we had even imagined. So of course, we just kept wanting to build more for him. And then on top of that, of course, he sings like an angel. So of course, you got to use everything you can. So I have a question. You know, you've been entrusted, obviously, with with Killjoys, with uh, Michelle's baby. I would think you also were did the movie adaptation for um, the Bruno and Boots uh, movies. Mm. And I feel like, I mean, in both cases, you have you're. I'm wondering if there is a way that you approach people or in your personal life or professional that's, that you feel like is a way or a reason that they trust you with, with this. And that's something that, that you think other creatives should do that, Ooh. you know, because to me, I feel like, you know, if, if you have created this thing to hand it off has got to be difficult. And you have obviously been someone that has been trusted multiple times with that. So is there something you feel about yourself that is, is the reason that that, uh, that that happens? That's a really interesting question. Um, so I have to think about it. I mean, I think with, with Killjoys, I was lucky that I'd had a chance to work closely with Michelle, you know, right from the beginning. So there were certainly other writers, you know, we had in season one Jeremy Boxen, who had worked with uh, Michelle back on Lost Girls. So she knew him and trusted him well, and he was her co-EP in, in season two, and then, uh, season one. But then season two, we went off to do some other stuff. So when I came back, um, you know, I had that continuity with her already. It just comes down, I think, in that case to personality and, and to the fact that, you know, I think she was happy with the writing that I was doing. Again, from a showrunner's perspective, one of the things you're looking for with, you know, that you wonder with writers is how much do I have to rewrite them? Um, and that's part of the job. And every writer knows that, that they will get rewritten. But it is true as a showrunner, the less you have to do, the more you can focus on other things. So, you know, and I, and I think Michelle was pretty happy for the most part with the stuff I had written. So, you know, I think I got the show um, without even us really having to talk about it because the process of creating a show in the first season is discovering what the show is. And then season two, you really start to discover what, what is working and what isn't. You know, I think we naturally both saw it as a show that was about family um, but that also, while not being necessarily an overtly political show, was in its own way very political about the things that Michelle and I both really cared about, issues of consent, um, issues of, you know, abuse and trauma and how mm -hmm. people process those. So all of those thing, things came about um, naturally. And, and I think, you know, at a certain point, um, you know, in season three, uh, where I became the sole co-EP and so I was helping run the writing room while Michelle was off doing the million and one things a showrunner has to do. Again, I think the season went in the direction she was happy with. So when it was time for her to kind of step back, because it, it really, it takes a lot out of you as a job. And I think she was feeling like she wanted to kind of just focus more on the writing. You know, we talked about it and it wasn't a huge shift for me to do it because uh, I mean, I knew the show as well as anybody. Uh, and we had already figured out um, what we both really liked about it. Um, and then as far as Bruno and Boots, I mean, luckily, uh, or the way it happened was, you know, there was, I grew up reading these these books by Gordon Corman, this fantastic uh, Canadian kids author. And, you know, I was reading it to my son, who was kind of, I think, seven or eight at the time, and thinking, boy, these would make a great TV show at the time, I thought. So I checked in on the rights, and turns out somebody had already gotten the rights, so I was kind of gave up on it until I get a call from my agent saying, you'll never believe it, that book you were asking about, 
the producers were just in here and they saw that we had the book on our desk and they were saying, hey, we just optioned that. And they said, well, we have a client who wants to work on it. They were like, great, we love Adam. So let's get together. So, you know, it was a kind of a meeting of fans because the producers were uh, Anthony and, and uh, Andrew from Aircraft were, were big fans of the books already. So, um, so we just got together and just kind of, you know, fanned out together for a while. And that was great. And, you know, as often is the case, you know, Mr. Corman had, had, had optioned the rights to the book. And generally, you know, unless you're, I guess, J.K. Rowling's, uh, the author kind of gives up the power to choose who the, uh, who the, the um, adapter is going to be. But I was very lucky that after I wrote, wrote the first draft and we sent it to him, I got a really lovely email from him just saying, yep, that's great. That's, that's, that's the world of, of Bruno and Boots. So, um, so I guess in that case, it was, again, just a case, as always, of you meet people, you, you, you find the things that you both like about something, and then there's just the element of faith that the other person has to trust that you as a writer uh, is going to be able to execute on, on the things that you promised. Yeah, well, back on... On Killjoys, I was really excited when Dutch's origin story started to really, really yeah. unfold. I think that's probably one of the most unique <laughs> origin stories I've yeah. ever heard of. It was, it was very, very cool. I, I have to ask you because I'm just curious from a standpoint: is there, are there stories that you come up with that you're going, oh, the fans, they're just going to eat this up. I, they're going to love this, and conversely. Are there storylines that you just know that fans are going to be mentally lobbing tomatoes at your head? And can you can you give me examples of both? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think one of the great things that I learned from working with Michelle, who really is kind of a singular talent, is um, if you make a show that you love, and that's harder than it sounds because there's so many op so many different ways you can go and so many compromises you make when creating something as big and as with as many people as a television show. You can often end up working on a show that you're not sure if you love or, or you're not sure what makes it work. And that's hard. Um, and sometimes it still works out. But, you know, Michelle's goal was always saying, I love this show. I love these characters. So I think she starts with the idea that I am a fan of this show and I am a fan of this world. So if I make something that I love, I will trust that other fans who like what I like will go along. Um, but not, we never would ask, I mean, we'd certainly talk as you do about, well, I wonder what they're going to think about this or about that. And we certainly, in the case of, say, Dutch's lineage, which was, you know, I never forget the day Michelle came in and just pitched that. She had kind of figured that out all on her own before we'd even started working on the season was, you know, she comes from the green, she is a memory of Anila's, this is how they look the same, and it just kind of blew all our minds, was, you know, but but we felt like, okay, we think it's really cool, we are fans of this show, so we will trust, so long as we can dramatize it in a way that people understand, that's the tricky part, because you can sit around at a table and say, okay, I get that concept, how do you show it, how do you make it dramatic and interesting and surprising, so that's where the real hard work comes in. Um, but I think that was one we were excited about because it felt different. You know, it felt like something, you know, we'd all seen clones before. We've all, and seen them done incredibly well on other shows. And, and we've seen, uh, you know, robots and, you know, sci-fi. There's, there's kind of so many different ways you can do the, the story of the doppelganger. Um, but how do you do something that's different, that fits within our world, you know, by... By season three, you know, by the end of season two, we had been talking about, you know, how do we take this concept of the green, the Holland, 
Um, what is it? How does it work? And again, how is it something different than just a alien, you know, in, infestation? How can it build? How does it give us more? And so when, again, Michelle started talking about it as, you know, think of it like a data cloud, think of it like a place where information is stored and then in a more poetic way where memory is stored, then it just kind of naturally said, well, what if Dutch comes from that? What if she is, in a sense, pure memory? Um, so I think we were always happy about that. I mean, I suppose you're always worried when you kill characters. Uh, and, you know, you know, because again, if you love, and if you love a character as a fan, of course you're going to be upset, but it's that delicious upset, hopefully, of this breaks my heart, but it still feels right. And so I think we were... I'm not going to say nervous, but we're certainly concerned that the audience would feel like we had done it in the right way. Uh, nobody likes it when a character is killed arbitrarily. Um, nobody likes it when a character is killed seemingly just to help out some other character's emotional journey. You know, and certainly on a, on a show like Killjoys, we're very aware of, you know, I think Michelle was also always really great at saying anytime we would make a decision like that, you know, what are we saying? You know, who are we killing? Um, what is that saying in the larger world? I mean, there is a big discussion that goes on in television now and an important one about who does end up getting killed all the time. Um, you know, are uh, gay characters, characters uh, from people of color, um, various groups that seem to kind of have a higher body count because of, is that and is that suggesting that they somehow only exist to uh, benefit the emotional journeys of other you know, straight white characters. And that's a thing you, you think of, you should be thinking about. Um, mm -hmm. You can't, it, it, what it means is that if you're mindful, then you know why you're making the decision and you're able to explain it and, and defend it to yourself. And hopefully the audience will pick up on that. So, you know, that being said, Potter, we knew Potter was going to die from the moment she came in. Potter was always built as a character who would go through an incredible journey of her own as this seemingly messed up, spoiled, drug-addicted princess becoming the spokesperson for the downtrodden of Westerly, making a horrible decision that would put us in a morally, you know, questionable place with her, but then ultimately sacrificing herself. And Michelle knew that from the very beginning, and we talked about that, and we knew, uh, we, we didn't know how we would necessarily get there, but we knew that's where the ending was coming. And so, Hopefully the reason why it felt so devastating was that because it felt like, you know, when you look back, you realize her, that's where her journey was going to go. And while it certainly adds to Johnny's emotional journey, she had her own story to tell. You know, later on, the kill, killing of Alvis was a bit more of a case of us talking about, you know, when we came to the end of season three, you know, what was a, what, what's a good way to have a character who we've grown to love, who we grow to believe, and who can, but also have us, you know, you sometimes need to have a death because you need to show that the stakes are there, right? If everyone can always survive other than a bunch of nameless characters in the background, there isn't quite that sense of danger. If Alvis can die, then pretty much anybody could die. Um, so that was one. And then we also wanted to do it as a surprise with Anila, and it felt like it tied in pretty well with the idea that, uh, you know, he came from a from a, a religious group that saw Anila as the devil, so she'd probably have to take that a bit personally. But we didn't know. I mean, that's the thing, to answer your question. We weren't sure that the audience would go with it. I've worked on other shows where the death of a character can be really traumatic for an audience. And while I certainly love as a writer the chance to... Look, our, our job is to make audiences feel something. Mm 
And so there is a certain kind of glee when you say your audience going, no, 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 and screaming, um, you know, it's fun to see you go, great, I did my job. I made you feel something. Yeah. <laughs> but that comes with a responsibility. It's also, you know, as George Lucas said, you want to make people feel something, sure, just, you know, drown some kittens. There's, there's a way to do it responsibly. I think that there's a way to do it irresponsibly. And hopefully we're not drowning kittens here. We're giving you guys stories that feel emotionally, you know, resonant and real. Right. And with uh, and with Potter and Pippin and Alvis, their deaths were meaningful. They they had value. And uh, I just wanted to also, uh, I was just thinking about with the finale, we saw Potter again, a version of her. So even in this, you know, the, the benefits of, of sci-fi is is that they're gone but they're still remembered and therefore can be brought up and we can see them again in some form uh but i just wanted to say i i I feel what you're saying with regard to their deaths because even as i hated uh the deaths that we get i never felt like they were cheap i didn't feel like potter's death was a, a cheap one even even though it was immensely painful it had value that's well, good. I'm really that, that's that's gratifying here. That's really the most important things for that you feel like you've taken the audience on a journey that at the end of it they feel was worthwhile, not simply being manipulated. Yeah. Oh, and then you guys definitely. Um, I know one of the issues that I think sometimes happen and fridging, right, with the comics. Yeah. I mean, that's become its common yeah. term, and I know there are shows that that I have watched and I've enjoyed, and as soon as that happens, I'm like, I'm done. Right. They cannot. You cannot just have a created character that is solely for and another character's character growth. And it's all about the tra- mm-hmm. their trauma is about the other person's viewpoint. And so I love that you guys have not done that. And I, yeah. with those meaningful deaths, I mean, everything, sorry, I'm trying to think of how to, like some shows that you watch come out the gate with a phenomenal first season. And then it feels like, second season, they're like, oh, whoa, we got renewed. Um, sure. Okay, what do we do now? <laughs> Or, on the other hand, shows, like, I know Uber and I are both Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. fans, but, like, the first season was slow, and you really okay. had to, like, stick with it, you know, to bef- before um, Captain America hit, and then it kind of changed everything. And if you went back and watched, you could pick up little hints, but, but Killjoys came out the gates, it has stayed there, it has felt the whole time as though you had a final purpose you were working towards. And I know you talk about, you know, obviously Dutch's origin story came up later, these things, but when, you know, when did, did, when Michelle and you kind of talked ideas out, did you know, like, we have in mind a five season arc, we have in mind a whole true series story, or has it just been such phenomenal writing that has totally tricked us all into thinking that you have this whole series arc? Um, Well, look, I mean, making TV is a bit of a magic trick, uh, in that if you do your job right, it looks like it was all predestined and preordained, and very rarely uh, can it be. You know, even something, you know, I'm a huge Babylon 5 fan. It was a, a major kind of TV milestone for me and you know there was probably no more there's probably no better example in tv history of a show that was as clearly plotted out that was um that where you know mr straczynski had a goal an end point knew where it was going and then the reality of tv sets in 
And, you know, he, he lost a lead actor after season one that he had to replace. Um, and things changed and characters changed and the realities changed. And then his five season show became a four season show because and so he had to compress two seasons. And then he got a fifth season and had to come up with a bunch of new stuff. And part of what I love about that show or, for instance, a show that I think sometimes takes it on the chin, sometimes a show like Lost is as a writing, as a TV writer, I'm always impressed Watching, seeing, seeing how they manage to deal with those uh, those challenges and still make it look like, ah, no, I meant to do that all along. So, in terms of Killjoys, I think the key with Killjoys has always been that we knew we knew what the feeling of a five season would be. We knew what the what the ending should feel like. And what I mean by that is that we knew where emotionally where we wanted these characters to go. Um, but we didn't lock ourselves into what the plot would be. We wouldn't, didn't lock ourselves into what the story was. Because part of it is you don't want to over-determine yourself and say, here's where it's going to go the entire way. Um, and then end up, you know, discovering you can't do that. Or or if you, if you figured it out too far ahead, you get bored. You also want to... You know, keep yourself excited and interested about what you're trying to do. So, so really what we had, you know, with each season we would sit down and we would say, here are the kind of big tent poles. You know, we know we need to get here by the middle. We know this is where we're going to the end. And we know what we're pointing towards what the next season is. So in case, in season two, we knew while we were still doing some cases of the week, Dutch is learning about the ramifications of Klein basically admitting that there was a level six, that there is this whole other kind of secret rack beneath the rack. Um, we knew that we would discover more then about the Holland and who they were, um, first through Klein and then through other people, and that by the end we would reveal Anila and we would be pointing towards a, a confrontation between Dutch and Anila. But then within that is where you, you build the stories. And really that's where a writing room comes in to be able to sit down and you just... You know, the, the metaphor I use a lot is you're building a bridge from both sides and just hoping that you meet in the middle. You are saying, OK, what if we get to this end? That's cool. Great. How do we get there? OK, well, what about this middle part? And there's a lot of course correction. Right. And what you need in a writing room is groups as people who are willing, who are able to be constantly thinking of new ways to do something because things are, you're con it's not like a movie where you write the movie. Any look, movies can still be rewritten on the fly, but you, in theory, you've written the movie, everything's prepped out your plan. So when you're shooting, you know exactly what you're doing. By the time you're shooting an episode of TV, you should be pretty clear on that, but you don't necessarily know what the next two or three episodes are, are going to be. So there's, you, you learn certain tricks also about how to say just enough to feel like you're you're maybe revealing something moving forward, but not so much that you're locking yourself into something. So, you know, the idea of who Anila was, and like I said, the idea of where she came from was really something that um, Michelle brought to the room after season two. In mm. season two, you know, we knew we had this amazing opening where we see what looks like Dutch 200 years ago on the moon of Arkin. Um, but we didn't know why, and we knew there was something cool, but then we spent a whole season thinking about what could it mean? Um, what could it be? And then knowing that, okay, we're not going to, at that point, you kind of feel like, okay, well, we're not going to give away everything, so hopefully we'll be able to reveal it in season three. What we can say, though, is that Klein is connected to her, that there's some story there, um, and then hope that when we finally figure out that answer, it appeals to people. Um, so there's also a lot of 
there's a lot of faith <laughs> in your own ability to come up with something clever, um, which you know you just have to go with at a certain point. That's so funny. So I have to say that that cracks me up. The idea that because you know fans, of course, think you guys have everything planned out and everything is there for a reason. And you're like, oh, let me come up with like a million fan theories. And this makes yeah. me laugh because one of our earlier pods we did, Max Wasinski from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm -hmm. and how he magically like re resurrected. And right. we had been spending a whole season or, you know, the, not the whole season, but from like his episode where he magically appears to the end of the season going like, was it this? Was it this? Was it this? And he's like, no, they were just like, dude, you're alive. <laughs> And so, <laughs> yeah, we did the same thing with Turin, right? Turin got, you know, a big knife through his chest in yeah. season one. And you're like, all right, he's dead, right? And then we literally, we were just watching going, God, Patrick's so great. He's so funny. We can't kill him. So we just said, oh, we'll just bring him back and put a patch on his chest. It'll be fine. <laughs> and I will say that oftentimes those work better because if the, if, if you're not surprised, if, if, you know, when Michelle came in and said Dutch is a memory, that surprised the hell out of us. And so we figured, okay, good. If we're gonna, then we have to be able to present it to the audience in the way Michelle presented it to us. Then that should surprise them. But if you know, and, and especially if you're setting stuff up, audiences are very smart. As an example, look, we knew when we brought in, you know, Jack uh, as the, the the introduction of Jack, Delsea and Dav and Anila's child. You know, came was a was a total left turn for us, right? It came out of the fact that Mako Lynn came to us and said, "Hey guys, great news! I'm pregnant. Um, how do you want to deal with this? And do we, you know, hide hide me behind a chair? Do we put me in big smocks? We tried it a bit. We're like, you know what? It felt kind of phony, and also it felt like we had a great opportunity, so long as Mako was comfortable with it, to actually bring this into the story because it was a show about family and it was a show about consent, and and so all of those things seemed to be brought out here and it gave us a chance to keep Delsea central in a way that we really wanted to because she was always such an important character for us and her journey was so important so um so that was a new thing we had to run with you know we were as tv professionals we also know it gets really expensive and difficult to shoot stuff with babies and kids under 12 because of labor laws so you have to think about those things. So we certainly thought, okay, we've already got set up this idea. If we reveal that Delsea is pregnant and we've done our job of making it look like she was not pregnant, as she was throughout all of season three, uh, then hopefully people will say, boy, that baby grew fast. Um, and that will hopefully give us a reason. And then if we set that up and it looks like we've cleverly set that up, then that gives us our way to do the classic, okay, and then a baby grows from a child to and you know a teenager in an episode. Well, look, there wasn't I think a single audience member who didn't see that one coming, right? right. Like I mean, you know, you know, and I checked. It's a convenient the, age for an actor. Everybody, <laughs> right? Everybody knew it, and and I didn't mind because I knew that we had other surprises coming, and you know what Jack represents and what he can do is still something we're holding on to. Um, but there's an example of a story where you set it up, you kind of know where it's going, and the audience is already there with you and ahead of you. So oftentimes those curveballs give you surprises that will hopefully surprise the audience too. Um, I've look, I get I'm the same way. When I watch Lost, I loved coming up with a million and one theories about things, and some of them I knew in my heart were never going to be the case because I knew that's not how a writing team was going to be thinking about this stuff. It's just a joy to come up with that stuff. I guess what I just always try to say to the audience is like, enjoy it, have fun. That's a great thing to do. 
And I get why we feel as audiences, we don't want to get jerked around. So we always say, well, I hope they know where they're going. And yes, to a certain degree. But remember as well that we're also working in a medium that requires us at any time to have to change things. Or ideally, if we recognize that something's working and we're getting that feedback from the audience, we're going to work hard to figure out a way to keep that going, even if that wasn't there in the plan to begin with. And that's what I find really exciting about about television is that it really is one of the most organic mediums I know because you have the option to change things uh, on the fly like that. Well, it's, it's funny that uh, what we're talking about with the baby, with Elsea, uh, obviously, you know, Kelsey and I <clears throat> had serious issues with her after she, you know, gutted one of our favorite people. I'm just saying, I'm just going to throw yeah. that out there. But throughout uh, season three, she was still very much an adversary. And it was in the finale of season three, when she was trapped on that on that pod with uh, with the uh, Jacoby brothers. And I was thinking, this is her paying penance for mm. for for what she did to yeah. Potter. And I, I was like, I'm starting to sense that maybe she's going to become, because of just the, the way the story is going, uh, an, an, an antagonistic ally. Uh, and of course, that's what we started to see with both Anila and with Delsea. And then I was thinking, what if the shift is in season five, is, is that they, and what we're seeing that already with Anila, is to become a hero, even though not in the, you know, the full white hat sense of the word, but definitely heroic and definitely a hero figure. And I thought, wouldn't that be, and feel free to throw any spoilers you would like to, you would totally be open to this. I'm, I'm just saying, okay. Wouldn't it be something if at the end of the day, she was one of the people who helped save everyone. If Delsa ended up a hero, I'm just yeah. saying. If she and Jack were like the two people left that remembered the truth. Yep. Ooh, wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> well, you certainly didn't see them in the in our crazy mind-bending finale, did you? So we must know they must be out there somewhere, right? So I just want to know about. I just let me just ask: in season no five, did you wrap Johnny in a in a bubble? Because I just want to protect Johnny, little sunshine puppy Johnny, to protect him and his little sunny face. Just wrap him in a bubble for the whole season. Just tell me that he just he got wrapped in a bubble. Just. Well, don't worry. We would uh, any any pain that we give Johnny, we always make sure we give him lots of cuddles and kisses too. Feel <laughs> very much the same way about Johnny and Aaron, of course, who is also just a delight. You know, I think you, a journey is always such a satisfying thing, especially when you have the time of five seasons. You know, Dutch's journey and the boys' journey, because they're the leads of a show, um, it's harder to to do. It's harder in a weird way to make those big changes to characters when they're the leads because one of the deals you make with an audience is from the get-go is here I'm going to give you a group of people who no matter what you're going to come back to and you're going to love them and you're going to want to keep seeing them. So if you'll notice in most TV shows, um, the lead character changes the least. Unlike in a movie where they change the most, they change the least because otherwise... At a certain point, your audience is going to go, wait a minute, I was watching a show about this, you know, hero dog catcher, and now all of a sudden he's this jerky tax collector. What happened? Um, so you have to give, and, and, and we all watch TV that way. So Dutch, we knew, would have, so what you created instead with those things is dynamics, that there would be certain things, certain 
areas of trauma and conflict that Dutch would always find herself in because as humans, you know, we often repeat things. And the same with the boys. And so the pleasure and the drama is in seeing them go through those and perhaps go through a certain kind of change, getting better at dealing with certain things or worse, uh, but still being fundamentally the same people. Then you have characters like Delsea or, or, you know, in a smaller way, one of my favorites, a character like Garrett. Um, <laughs> characters who yes. come in as one thing, but because they are more, they are support players, you can take them on more of a journey, so long as the audience liked who they were, because then you get the fun of seeing them go through that, and then you can really sit back and go, wow, that person came in as this character, and now all of a sudden they're that character. And hopefully you've, you've, what you've done is something that was already apparent there. And I think with Delsea, it was, what was apparent was, for all of her iciness and coldness, there was something about Dutch that she couldn't help but find attractive. And mm -hmm. out of that seed came, you know, her falling in love with Anila, and then for somebody like her, what falling in love would mean like. And even though doing that after she had committed this horrible crime uh, against Potter, you know, uh, gave us a, it just gave us a really interesting journey to take her on. And when you've got an actor of the caliber of Mako, uh, you want to just, you know, test her to her limits. And, and she, you know, she would just keep hitting it back at us. And we'd go, great, awesome. So with Delsea, yeah, the journey felt like, okay, if she is a, an antagonist, a villain, and, and by season two, we said, let's, what's the most villainous thing she could do, the most personal, awful thing she could do? Great, now we've painted her into a corner. How do we get ourselves into a new corner? Um, and hopefully we've done it right, in the same way we were talking about before, we do it in a way that feels legitimate. And I think, you know, as I kind of try to track, you know, an audience and how they're responding to stuff, I love how split people are on Delsea, you know? And I love <laughs> there are people who are like, I will never forgive that bitch. I, she's a murderess, she's, you know, genocider, forget her, screw her. And then there's literally somebody on Twitter who I loved who was like, I'm not only happy she killed Potter, I wish Potter would come back so she could kill her again. <laughs> there's people out there yeah. who just love Delsea uh, and <laughs> Potter. And you know, I love working in a universe where there are those, and yet both of the people are saying, I'm a fan of the show. Nobody's saying, I hate this show because I hate this character. They're loving to hate the character and also, or loving that character and hating whoever that character hates. That feels then like, all right, good, then what we're doing is we're being true to that character, uh, not just following, you know, us just playing favorites. Well, it's funny you say that because I was that person at the end of, you know, when, when she killed Potter. Sure. I will never forgive her. I hate her guts. Yep. I can't stand her. Every time she's on the screen, I'm 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 throwing uh, mental spitballs at her head. I just yep. I just make her go away. And then little by little, I'm like, well, look at her with Anila. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And then look at her with the, and then little by little, it's like she started to worm her way into my heart, my my the dark recesses of my soul. And uh and I just started to warm to her quite a great deal. But then it was the moments when with Johnny, when even when she was still Holland, she was like, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't understand because I didn't have that. But now I know what I took from you. And I'm and I'm sorry. She said that when she was Holland, but it was only after she got her humanity back when Johnny looked at her and with with such uh, which such ire and how he talked to her and you could see how devastated she really was. She tried to hide it because that's 
how she rolls. But yeah. you could really see in her eyes, I think she was fully, fully in, in, intaking this. I took this from him. Yes. I took well, this absolutely. from him. Yeah, absolutely. And that was really important for us in that season to give Johnny that reckoning uh, mm -hmm. with her. And it was really important for us also, you know, to say, and, and it carries through, that, you know, that never, for us never to feel like we have to make Johnny forgive her. Um, because from his perspective, what she did was unforgivable. Um, that doesn't mean he can't see her value. That doesn't mean that he, that she in a sense didn't teach him some things about power and how you play it that were horrible to have to go through, but, you know, he learned them. But, and then there was also, as we, when we were writing that episode of um, season uh, four, when they, when he and she have that conversation after she's human again, where we realize the, these two, you know, in a sense, now that Johnny had gone through what he'd gone through, once again, they are bonded in a way that nobody else on that ship and possibly in the universe is, that they've gone through an experience where they both were Holland, they both became human, and they both did unforgivable things during that time and also they both lost or felt that they had lost the loves of their lives so mm -hmm. they uh, you know they understand each other in a way that nobody else does but even that being the case and 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 even as our audience starts to feel like okay well i see her perspective i get it i could maybe forget what she did to potter that we at least can still uh, that Johnny still is able to have, you know, the real, I think, reaction he would have. And it was important for us in, you know, the finale of season four to remember that, you know, part of bringing Potter back was, yes, we wanted to see Potter again and see Sarah. And, and, and it seemed like obviously the natural place for Johnny to go to on his worst night. But let's not also forget that started with Delcea stabbing her. Um, and, you know, we never want to pretend uh, that that didn't happen or that somehow all is forgiven. This is a universe where these things matter and the trauma that you go through um, never just gets wiped away. Yes, that's important. Um, and and obviously felt. So when you got the news that y'all, you'd been renewed, but it was for a set two seasons, that we were going to have two seasons to totally wrap up the story. Does having that two full seasons help you find a true like wrap or ending on the series having that time to tell it or is it almost like well now we have to end it but we have to end it in two seasons does it make it more difficult to to tell that like almost like a two-part ending how does that i mean with that process was that difficult easier relieving um it was actually what was funny was when michelle and i but before we got the order when we were still waiting uh last well two summers ago about you know what we were going to uh, what we were going to do, you know we had talked about what the story was going to be, and one of the things we said was you know you know now I can say because obviously we we real we said you know okay we end each season we realized we ended each season with one of our characters going away and the other two having to find them. How do we not redo that uh, and yet have something with that same feeling that sense of our, our team is broken, uh, that they need to come back together. And, you know, what Michelle and I both, by that point, when we knew that the show was very much about memory, uh, that we realized, well, the, the scariest thing and the way you want to end season four is kind of, you know, and you, it's, it's kind of similar to the way you always end the, the fourth act of a, of a TV show is at the worst possible moment. So what would be the worst possible thing? And that would be not just to separate them, but to mean that they, didn't, they don't even remember who they are. 
because then they wouldn't even know that they had a family together uh, that, that, that could save the universe. So that felt like a pretty horrible, great way to end a season and a real cliffhanger, provided you could come back. Because, you know, the other thing we always did uh, in the last three seasons was we ended it in a way, because we didn't know always that we were coming back, is we said, okay, if this is where it ended, does the audience feel like, okay, great, there's more adventure, but we've also finished something, we've accomplished something. And we always tried to do that. Just in the, you know, if we ended on season three, yes, they're kind of split up and they're sent away, but, you know, we've turned Anila, we've finished the war, we've seen there's a new enemy, you know, there's another battle ahead. Um, with season four, we said, you know, what would be really cool if we could get two seasons, then we could build season four towards this really amazing cliffhanger, and then season five, we bring it home. Uh, and so when they, they turned around and just the economics of television, which is weird, which is in the end, it's more economically feasible sometimes to make more than less. When we realized, you know, the best way to do this is to do two seasons and shoot them back to back. That Michelle and I both said, well, that's great. That's actually very convenient because we have an idea for that. And that's kind of what we executed on. And, and I think it, it ended up working out pretty well. Well, we are definitely uh, excited. So I wanted to ask you uh, just briefly. I am a huge fan of X Company. Oh, um, wow. Great. I love, yeah, I love that show so much. I think it uh, – so I, even being in the States, may have downloaded it and watched it all. You know, it's just now showing here on Ovation. <laughs> naughty, naughty. Um, are uh, fixing to end on Ovation and doing a rewatch. But just love it. And I, one of the things that – that I, when I tell people about it, I'm like, you have to see this show. It is, I think, the best historical war drama out there because it focuses on the human stories. Uh, as opposed to, like, you know, you're sure Saving Private Ryan's a great movie, but it's lots of boom, 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 explosion, sure. explosion. Whereas I know the moment that sunk in for me most with X Company, I still picture in my head, it still gives me chills, is after Aurora moves into the house that was vacated, if you will, mm -hmm. and she holds up the dress of the, the people yes. that had left, and it's got the, the star of David on it, and she's looking at herself. And, and I just, it just took my breath away, because these little moments of humanity, and I was wondering, when, you're, when you were working on that, because it is, you've done a lot with, like, you know, people dying, and, and Flashpoint, and, and Killjoys, and, but these being, like, sort of historically-based moments, was there ever a point when you were filming... X company that almost took your own breath away, even just like as you were producing the show. Well, it's pretty hard not to make a show about world war two. And especially when you're shooting in Europe, you know, which we were lucky to do and not feel surrounded by that history, you know, and you know, when we were shooting in Budapest and we were never able to set at least the season I was in, we didn't set anything in actual Budapest. So we could never show, you know, one of the most, terrifying things you'll see if you go to budapest is along the the, the banks of uh the river you've got these bronzed shoes uh that are all along there and they are the shoes that were left behind by jews who were forced to jump in the river and so they memorialize that so when you live when you're in europe it's there and the history is very real so yeah you have those moments a lot um you know i think the reason why that show was the way it was, was, you know, Mark and Stephanie who created it and also created Flashpoint, you know, which also had a similar thing, which is for all of the action and the fun, which they love. Um, those two always are always drawn to 
just the very human question of what is it like to go through something like this? You know, as uh, that, that the question is always, you know, if it was you, what would you do? You know, that was the question uh, in, that drove us always throughout X Company was, you know, given the situation, what would you do? And so our job was to constantly put ourselves in that situation. And to exact, and I very I remember very clearly when we sat around in the room talking about that scene where she gets that apartment and pulls out that dress. And you know, in season two, what we wanted to do, in a sense, was um, you know, if season one ended with you know the Jews getting cleared out of Paris. What we wanted to have was a sense of the missing and the sense. And so we did that with the dress. We did it with the necklace. Uh, that that kind of played out through that season. Uh, and then, of course, in season three, where they went to was the idea of, okay, now we will go to them, to those victims. But season two was very much about, yeah, what are those moments like when you realize everything may look normal and Paris may look like it's running, but there was actually a whole group of forgotten people. And we keep discovering bits and pieces of what they left behind. And, and in a way, that can sometimes be more powerful than, than just seeing, you know, an, another victim another scene that you've seen before yeah i mean what it it's still i think there's like three two two scene two scenes that are deaths of course um i still harry that one was the most shocking to me i remember literally as it happened going like no (laughs) and just like breaking down in sobs because i just couldn't it just it came out of nowhere but i felt like like with tom's was devastating but it wasn't quite as like unexpected because there was like the whole fight leading up to it and stuff but just just beautiful and but i was thinking when you're talking about dulcea and her journey it makes me think a lot about franz now i will say he's still a nazi i have a really hard time uh even by the end of season three being like look at him go he's such a good guy because he's still a nazi but he has a similar change in character i mean um and again, when you have an actor like Torben, you want to work with them constantly and you want to give them cooler and cooler things to do. You know, what was great about uh, about him was, as a character, was we didn't have to worry about will the audience like him. And that's, you know, you oftentimes go, oh, can we make a character do this or will the audience lose them? And we're like, he's a Nazi commandant. It's, it's uh, or Obersturmfuhrer. Um so we don't have to know the audience isn't supposed to like him. So now the challenge becomes, how do we at least make him compelling? Um, mm-hmm. Never make you feel like, oh, I feel bad for the now. We were certainly never going to tell a story about, well, here's how he became a Nazi. Don't you feel sorry for him? No. But you can say, again, you know, I think part of the challenge and the desire on that show, and, and, and it was something we thought a lot about and wanted, obviously, to be responsible for, but, you know, Drama is ideally not just a story of good guys and bad guys, but it's a story of can you imagine yourself in in different shoes? And if we're going to tell a story about Nazis and Germans in occupied France, how are we going to tell a story where the audience is forced to be in their shoes, um, horrible, uncomfortable shoes? And can we ask the audience, all right, given different circumstances, what would you do? You know, and obviously we put him through a series of events that, you know, normally you'd go, oh, I can't help but feel terrible for this person. But at the same time, being friends and being a Nazi, the, the decisions he made were also horrible and horrifying. 
so the the you know as I think probably a bit different from whereas Del Sea is I think as you rightly guessed a bit of a journey if not towards redemption at least towards you know from outright villain to a strange kind of hero you know is is uh, Franz Faber ever a hero I don't know if I'd ever say that yeah. what I would say was that he is a man you know and in a sense broken by the decisions that he made. Uh, by the path he went down, and seeing if there were, and and for us it was about finding well what is the thing that he still sees of value you know if you work in a world and in a system that has completely and systematically drained anything human of value and so that there is only power what do we give him that makes him still believe that there is some value in some human life uh, that was interesting uh, and I think it, it allowed us to take him on a really interesting interesting journey and, and i think that's certainly one of the, the the cooler things about that series you know with uh, with fans i some fans make the mistake of thinking oh so-and-so is your favorite character you must forgive and like everything about them right and for me i like all sorts of gray and dark characters because i find them interesting and compelling i don't necessarily always agree in fact i guarantee i don't yeah. agree with the choices and the paths they take and uh and the consequences of their actions that they have to suffer uh it hurts because i am i feel a connection to them as a fan uh, but that doesn't mean i completely uh you know they're not f free and clear of of the crimes they have committed i i know that i've, I've seen some fans i think make the mistake of uh, you're know, whoopifying a character. Oh, I don't care if they're a Nazi. They're cute. Oh, I'm sure they didn't mean it. I mean, they're so cute. And I'm like, don't know. They're compelling. They're interesting because they're so screwed up. They're they're fascinating and and how complex they are to come to their the decision making processes. And I guess I want to know from your perspective, are is there a favorite character? Uh, that you've written for that has been, you know, complex and interesting and uh, maybe divisive, maybe, uh, that you have been able to write for uh, that you can kind of mention and why you liked writing for them. And are you talking about just Killjoys or all uh, kind of across, everything? Because I mean, we sure, already, I would say Delcea certainly fits that bill. I think Anila yeah. also in her way fits that bill because what looks like kind of the mad queen, you know, red queen villain you know, it turns out is a, it is a profoundly abused, you know, little girl. And so yeah. I found that really interesting. Franz Faber absolutely uh, was a character who, like, as I just kind of went on about, um, allowed us to, to kind of put ourselves in strange roles that, yeah, I never felt the need to make the audience like him. I think one of the things I really loved about writing Flashpoint uh, was also the, the idea, you know, from Mark and Stephanie's was, you know, we, we, we never wanted to do a show about here's our good, awesome cops and here's all the people we want to see them shoot. The desire in that show was you want to get to a point where you are hoping against hope that our cops don't shoot this person. Mm -hmm. And that what you're seeing in, in the case of every character is seeing somebody in their kind of worst moment, um, their absolute worst time. And so, you know, I think one of the episodes I wrote about that the character I really liked it was an episode called Clean Hands, which was about one, and then it turns out two people who had gone through the loss uh, of a child by a serial killer and, and what that did to them and the decisions uh, that they made that led them to become, you know, attempted murderers. 
And so I think I'm always drawn towards characters who are put in situations that test them, that push them to limits. And I guess for me, it's always a question of, you know, what would I do? That's the only way I really know how to write that stuff is, and there's what I would like to believe I would do. And then there's, you know, let's be honest, what would I really do? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, in that show and, and in that case, it was about, in that episode, it was about, you know, would I, would I be the guy who is able to figure out a way to put that somewhere or would I be the guy um, who would say, no, I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to get some measure of comfort by murdering the person uh, who murdered my child? And I, I won't say that's a fun headspace to be in, but it's an interesting one uh, and an exciting one. Those are those are definitely the characters that I'm drawn to. Uh, and I think actually just honestly in Flashpoint, the leads, uh, both of the, the lead guys played by Hugh and, and Rico were both interesting in terms of characters who are trying to do good, uh, mm-hmm. who want to do good, but are in a job where that just grinds you down and yeah. trying to find ways. And so allowing them to screw up, allowing them in a show like a cop show where your cops are heroes, showing them and their vulnerability was, uh, I think, really important to me. I think those are the characters I really like writing the most. People who are trying their best in impossible situations. And then the mm-hmm. question is, do they get through it or not? I'm like, I need to go back and rewatch Flashpoint again. <laughs> I watched it you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. years ago. And now I'm like, I, I have these like scenes in my head and I'm like, oh yeah, I loved that show so much. Uh, I need to go well. back and rewatch. <laughs> uh, so I think we're, we're almost uh, up at our time, but we just wanted to ask you really quick, is there anything you can or are willing to tease about season five of Killjoys? Or, or are there any new projects that you can talk about yet? No real new projects I can have, but I am taking, uh, I think, hopefully people would agree, a well-deserved break after, <laughs> you know, usually when you make a season of 10 episodes, it's about six months, you're away from your family a bunch, but then you come back. This was, you know, over a year, so mm. I was pretty wiped by the end of it. We're still doing post right now, uh, so I'm kind of uh, spending my days right now in my underwear catching up on Netflix and video games. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is pretty great. Uh, so, but I do have a couple of projects that are kind of in development that uh, hopefully I'll be able to tell people about when they get a bit further down the line. Always happy to find a way to tease season five. I'm really, I think we're all really proud of it. I think it, it ended up being, you know, I would say in a very general sense, um, you know, we had felt like we had taken the journey of the green to kind of its natural conclusion and we wanted to discover something new and different. So I would say season five uh, is, in a sense, going forward. Uh, it is true the green is dead, as we said at the end of the of the season, for the most part. <laughs> and the story is now going to be, you know, set in, you know, our quote unquote real world. Although clearly something has happened uh, to change the reality. I think uh, when you guys finally do see the lady, hopefully you'll be as delighted as we became. Uh, with her and and uh, the way she presents, I am really really excited about. There's a particular episode uh, coming uh, in the early one that I think might tear out some hearts, unfortunately. But at the same time, uh, allows us to do a type of story. Uh, I'll just say bottle show, uh, but a type of story that is always kind of catnip for writers when you're able to do something very contained. Uh, and do a total character story. I think that's always a lot of fun. Um, and I'm very excited about that one. And I'm really excited about, you know, for you guys to see where this goes, because I think what hopefully you'll agree we managed to do was, 
really dig into when the question of the season was what what is it about these three uh, that they love about each other? Um, what is it about these three that draws them to each other? As we know at the mm-hmm. end of the season, they don't know who each other is, or they certainly don't know who they were to each other in reality. And that extends to the other characters we've seen in terms of, and you know, for us, it was a question of, if you don't know who you are, if you don't have a memory, if you don't even know there's a villain, is there still something inherently true about you that will keep, that will guide you and that will draw you? And I'm pretty excited about that one. And then finally, I'll just say, I cannot wait for you guys to see Pre. Uh, if you thought he was sexy before, you will not believe it. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me excited. Yeah. But uh, just a warning, if, if Pre <clears throat> bites the dust, we're definitely throwing tomatoes at you at the screen. Yeah. <laughs> you will. Oh, yeah. Major tomatoes. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is great. We really appreciate you spending all this time with us. Thank you so much. Oh, my oh. pleasure. It was wonderful. I mean, I love, you know, I, I, I've said before, I enjoy your podcast, checking it out. And uh, I think you guys ask really good questions. It's nice to be able to talk about how, uh, you know, the show actually gets made if people are interested in that. Um, and we're just so grateful to the fans of the show. I mean, as with anything, it wouldn't continue without the number of people and, you know, the networks see that and they realize, um, especially in this kind of, you know, crazy new marketplace where audiences come and go, the fact that we have, you know, a loyal, dedicated audience who stuck with us, uh, you know, and, and, and keeps in being engaged. And I'll also say, I just, what I really love and appreciate about our fans is, you know, we spend a lot of time hearing about and talking about, you know, the toxicity that can happen sometimes in fandom and, and between creators and fans and I've just been so lucky uh, in that we have never gotten anything like that uh, from Killjoy's fans. Hopefully we've never given anything like that. You know, I just think very, feel very blessed that everyone, even when people, and there are people with strong opinions who don't like it, have always expressed it really with, you know, care and love. And that's all we ever want to do is create something that appeals and entertains to people. And, you know, I, if there's any message I'd give to fans is that's all creators ever want to do. And really, yeah. nobody's out there trying to make you feel bad. Um, we're all just trying to give you something that is entertaining and full of joy, um, even if it makes you feel bad at the moment. So I really appreciate that Killjoy's fans seem to get that inherently. And this ride has just been such a joy to take with them. I'm sorry, I'm trying not to cry. I'm getting all, like, choked up. <laughs> that was a beautiful message. <laughs> well, I mean, your, your stories are moving, and what you just said was really moving, and it really actually touched me quite a bit because fans don't know. We don't know what's going on in your heads. Uh, you know, if you're twirling your mustache and saying, what can we do to break their souls today? Sure. Uh, so it's nice to know that, you know, what, what your perspective is on, on your side of the, of the screen. Well, that's absolutely true. That's my pleasure. In the end, I think if maybe all fans need to think about is think of every time when you sit down just to tell a story to somebody. You never, even if you know you're telling them a scary story or a sad story, in the end, what you want to be doing is to share something with them. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're all trying to do, I think. I think that's a, a beautiful sentiment and we and a perfect one to end on. Thank you so much again, Adam. We really appreciate all the time. You too. Take care, Thank guys. You. You just listened to the podcast Nerds of the Hub, produced, recorded, and edited by the TV Series Hub team. If you want to read TV and film-related articles, reviews, and more, go to www.tvserieshub.tv. 
Also, follow us on Twitter and check our Facebook page, both at TV Series Hub. Send us a message. No, proudly.